Sean Ford is the chief operating officer of Algorand. I've known him since the mid-1980s, believe it or not, when we were both undergrads at Williams College. He's since went on to have a terrific career in tech with an MBA from Harvard along the way. And before Algorand served as chief marketing officer at LogMeIn, which trades on the NASDAQ. Sean and his colleagues are pioneers of a new future powered by blockchains. In this conversation, he gives us a glimpse into the possibilities this new technology unlocks for the world and how entirely new borderless economies and worlds are literally being constructed from scratch as we speak. We also do a deep dive into the fascinating world of Algorand itself, which provides a foundation and infrastructure for existing businesses, all kinds of new projects, and even some countries to operate globally in this emerging decentralized economy. One more thing, any opinions expressed by my guests or myself are solely our own opinions. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I am not an investment advisor. Always do your own research. Okay, let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby. Going out. Sean, great to have you on. Let's dive right in. For our benefit, maybe you can first begin with what a blockchain is and why blockchains matter in society. Uh, sure. So um, blockchains are at the highest level, a distributed database, a distributed ledger. And so what does that mean? Most databases that people are familiar with are very centralized. A particular company or a bank will have uh, you know, a giant data room with a bunch of servers, and that's where they store everything. Um, the thing about blockchains are blockchains are actually distributed, meaning that they tend to be run by you know, thousands of different nodes around the world. Think of them like um, cell towers. If you were building a cell network, you'd need to have cell towers placed all around the world. And so nodes or computers or laptops are run around the world that act as those cell towers. And what they do is they verify the quality and or the accuracy of each of a set of blocks of transactions. So a blockchain is a chain that has blocks of transactions that move at different speeds and different paces that are validated in a decentralized way versus all going into one place the network validates and every node or cell tower in the network is able to review, see those transactions. Of course, they're shielded so they don't have personal information, but they can see them and test against the program or an algorithm, the validity of those transactions. So in that way, it's immutable, it's secure, it's unhackable. Um, there's no way to go uh, uh, sort of change information. And uh, the fact that it's distributed uh, makes it far less uh, likely that someone's going to be able to get in and get that information because they would have to go at simultaneously thousands of anonymous node runners or cell towers to get information. And that's just almost impossible to do. So blockchains are a distributed database that allow for transactions in the exchange of, of typically, in most cases, some sort of uh, asset or value. That's an awesome explanation. And blockchains are relatively new in society. Um, why are these things so important? Why, why do they matter? 
Well, I think the best way to frame this is to go back to the early days of uh, of the internet. So before, you know, when the internet first was was created, I don't know that people were walking around saying, I need something called the internet or the World Wide Web. It was, you know, just something that appeared. And now I would think it's safe to say that uh, people don't know, we don't know what we would do without it. I mean, we wouldn't be having, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right. about it. And so, so it's become, you know, part of the fabric of, uh, everyday business and every everyone's uh, you know uh, the way they interact and and um, operate on a day to day basis, where the internet was very successful, or you could debate at least it was largely successful, was removing the friction that people had in terms of either capturing data or communicating or capturing information and sharing information and communicating. Just think about email as a dumb example. And um, and so people can go find what they need and they can do it relatively seamlessly if they have a connection to Wi-Fi and, um, you know, it's very portable, all that. So a lot of friction removed from just communicating. But what the Internet didn't do was remove friction from financial exchange. If you think about it, uh, sending and receiving money uh, is expensive. There are fees that go along with it. Um, there are minimum balances required for many banks and, uh, you know, bank accounts that, you know, if you're in the United States and you tell someone it's a $200 minimum to have a checking account, you know, 200 bucks is still 200 bucks, but a lot of people can find a way to have a bank account. $200 in a, a Latin America, Central American country or in Africa in order to establish some sort of a bank account, let alone forget the infrastructure, uh, it is a lot of money. And so there's a barrier that um, the Internet didn't solve, which was really removing the friction for inclusion, uh, 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 participation, um, uh, you know, sort of barriers of fees for people to be able to interact and exchange value. And so as a result, blockchain is really kind of where the inter internet was, let's say 20 years ago, which is if done correctly, uh, it can become the new rails for the uh, exchange of value, either it's, uh, you know, assets, uh, currencies, um, you know, uh, new innovative uh, ways to allow people to participate in, in some form of upside prosperity, uh, just earning a basic interest rate, securing funds. So it, it's, it's really designed to remove the friction from uh, what I would say a financial exchange and participation. Got you. And it's interesting you say, you know, people weren't walking around saying, hey, we need an internet, however many years ago. Um, and yet it is ubiquitous, as you pointed out, in our lives. And you draw the parallel. Here we are. Blockchains have emerged. Where did these organisms emerge from? Uh, what is the arc of these things and where are they going? Yeah. Yeah. So I would also, you know, so I'd also point out, it's funny that you, you say that too, is that even though people weren't really expecting or, or asking for, um, you know, this, uh, this, infrastructure called the internet. Um, the other thing I would also point out before I jump into the answer to your question is that, um, that you know, I don't know how, you know how the internet works. Does anybody, I mean, so it ends up becoming this invisible fabric that you don't necessarily need to understand how the technical, you know, components of the internet works to enjoy and use and interact with it on a day-to-day -day basis. So now back to your question, if you think about, you know, where did this whole idea come from? 
uh, for blockchains. I mean, look, I think everybody that has any interest in blockchain is always going to go back to the Satoshi paper uh, that that was written um, by one individual or a group of individuals uh, that are, uh, you know, hopefully still out there and enjoying the world. Um, but, you know, it was a pretty transformative idea to create this uh, distributed and decentralized means of transacting. And um, and so that's that's where it came from. Uh, you know, it's been iterated on and, and, you know, Ethereum is the next one that really kind of came in and, and really launched what most people, you know, see it as a, you know, a, a fairly um, significant innovation and in step function beyond what Bitcoin was able to do. And I'm happy to talk about the differences there. But ultimately, uh, you know, look, I think that um, the rate of adoption of blockchain is around again, where it was, if you go back to when the internet really was sort of pioneered, it wasn't in the late 90s when adoption kicked in, it was really with ARPANET and some of the early government technologies that existed even before Al Gore, sorry, yeah. uh, sorry, Al, um, and, uh, and was then um, worked on and use cases were found and it was called a solution uh, in search of a problem and, you know, all of the same kind of things. And so what ended up happening is over a 15 plus year period, as the technology matured, as the technology actually reached a, a point where it enhanced the user experience, whether it was individuals or businesses, you, you saw adoption start to kick in. And um, I was there at the early days. So I remember how that worked, but I would say that, um, that a blockchain's in the same place. Like if you look, blockchain's only been around, really even the Satoshi paper isn't even a decade old at this point. And um, we are, I believe, where we were kind of in the late 90s with the internet, with blockchain. There uh, are a lot of trends, we could talk about those that you see happening um, where, but I'll point to a couple that tie and wrap up this answer is that I'd say that, that you know, you're seeing mainstream businesses start to move in and adopt blockchain. You're seeing national projects and national governments either launch initiatives uh, and or adopt certain aspects of blockchain. You're seeing um, new assets uh, being created or, uh, or securities uh, being digitized and regulated like they would be in a, you know, a NASDAQ or a New York Stock Exchange, but they are uh, being launched and uh, built and regulated on blockchain. Um, mm -hmm. You see banks uh, doing payments and remittances on blockchain. So there are uh, use cases that are starting to crop up as you see this bridging of traditional business and traditional capital start to flow in quite heavily, as well as government and um and even local, you know, local, state, and, and national governments uh, moving in uh, to the space. Right. Yeah, very helpful. And now, you know, if we really unbundle that and put it in perspective in terms of, you know, the arc of history, which you're giving us, where we are in this phase at the dawning of this new distributed ledger technology and all the, the potential applications that it has, you say, well, what is this opportunity now? What a wonderful challenge it is. And, you know, if you look at the, these pioneers of which you are one who are building this future infrastructure, you know, what, what is going through your head as you, you know, imagine how this thing will be built and what are the challenges? Sure. So I think um, there's a few sort of vectors on this one. One, I would say is that, that I sort of alluded to it a minute ago, that 
that in order for technology to really be adopted and used, it has to improve upon whatever's there uh, previously, any legacy tech, and it has to also demonstrably be better. And so that's an obvious statement, but I mean, it's a tale as old as time. We're here at a place where blockchains now, from a performance perspective, are enhancing or increasing the end benefit. Whereas, you know, when Bitcoin... Bitcoin was launched. Bitcoin was largely built to mine Bitcoin. Um, there wasn't, it was an unbelievably innovative technology, but it was one that, that you know, I'll just give you the simple example. You know, if you said blockchain was the most innovative uh, technology in the world and everyone should use it. And, and let's say you believe that, Dave, and you're like, oh, yes, I, I believe that. And I say, would you like to imp, you know, put that and have your, your house use blockchain? And wouldn't that be amazing? It'd be the most modern house ever. And you say, oh, that sounds fantastic. And I go, now, here's the catch, though. With, with the Bitcoin house, if you go into a room and turn on a light, uh, you have to wait eight minutes for the light to come uh-huh. on. But it's super cutting edge. And so then you're like, wait a minute, I'm not going to implement that. No, what kind of moron wants to wait eight minutes for a light to come on? So so why am I saying that? Because, you know, it took several years and iterations of blockchain technology, uh, next generation projects like Algorand to get to a point where you can go into a room, turn on the light and the light comes on. So you've gotten to a place where, um, you know, the the tech has has outpaced uh, and or enhanced the end user expectation. Right. So that's the first thing. Yes. Um, and then your second part, the second part of your question you asked about. Well, the evolution, in other words, uh, this has emerged from a prior system that wasn't ideal. A decade has gone by. It's already improving the experience, et cetera, with the more modern blockchains. Uh, but you are kind of pioneering the structure of these, uh, this future. Uh, some of these projects are going to be, you know, cross-border, very significant, you know, economies unto themselves. Sure, sure. So, so I think, I think, you know, if you're looking about where, if you're, if you're sort of going to where it's headed, I, I think that ultimately, um, when you look at uh, a blockchain, whether it's going to be around for the long term, and and how you want to think about um, you know, what it ultimately can be encapsulated as. Is it, is it a genuine block? There's lots of different types of blockchains. There's lots of different areas of, of focus for blockchains. But ultimately, the the perspective that, that I, I believe is the right one is that each blockchain project is, is it can be thought of as, you know, you're building a country but a country that has no borders. So, you know, we always think of countries as having, you know, physical constraints or geographic constraints because that's how we learned. And um, now what blockchain allows for is really a borderless economy to be built uh, and allows for anyone who would like anywhere in the world who has connection to, you know, an internet or, or a device of some sort to participate in that economy and choose to do it. So it's incredibly liberating. And again, it removes a lot of friction. And if you think about then, you know, the, the development of blockchain projects through the lens of, uh, you know, the, the building of a country or a macroeconomic lens, it really starts to shed some insight. And right now, I think a lot of people don't know how to look at, you know, the quality of a blockchain project. There's a lot of them out there. Um, but, you know, evaluating with some consistency, a framework that uses these sort of macroeconomic principles makes sense. And I'll just give you an example. Like if you look at, you um, 
Uh, and and I, I know you have a very intelligent group of people that are listening to this and probably saying, that, why do you have this guy on, Dave? But I would say that if you if you sit here and step, step back, you'd say, well, if you all were going to build a country from nothing, let's pretend it's it's a traditional country that's just a geographic geographically situated. Well, what, what do you need? Well, I mean, the first thing you probably need is some sort of infrastructure, including roads and pipes and and, you know, uh, the ability to, um, you know, get a truck from point A to point B, send, you know, uh, materials from point A to point B, just basic infrastructure. And if you have a really good infrastructure, well, um, you know, that's going to be helpful because it'll make it easier for commerce and easier for things to happen. If you have a crappy infrastructure, well, that's a problem. And so, you know, in this case, the, the blockchain is that technical infrastructure for the country. You need to have quality tech. It needs to be reliable. It needs to be performant. It needs to be secure. It needs to be uh, uh, sustainable. And so at the end of the day, you know, you start there. And then what you say is, well, what else do you need? Well, you, you probably need to have some sort of, um, you know, ability to attract new business growth, because if you have this, this, this economy, you need people to come build. And in this particular right. case, it's like, you know, how many, what sort of projects, how many projects are building in your economy? How many businesses are being started in your economy? And then you want to make it easy for people to do right. that. So then you have to have there be the ability to people to sort of simply get so it would be like uh having a you know a trade policy or or a particular you know set of incentives in a state that that encourages the development of business whereas some places with higher taxation or other things might be um might be less uh uh attractive as a country to, to bring um new businesses into. And then you need, I mentioned this before, sustainability. You want to make sure that what you're doing is, is good for the environment, that your economy is not just cranking out, you know, coal and dumping, you know, oil into right. the ocean, right? You want that. Right. You want sustainability. And lastly, I mean, you want to be able to make sure that you've got, um, uh, you know, a good knowledge economy. You need education in the economy to allow other people to learn about, you know, how to build businesses and how to do that. And so if you do draw the parallels between all of those things, the blockchain, you've got infrastructures to technology, you've got developers or dApps that are being built and the rate at which they're being built uh, as the evidence of new business starts or new housing starts. You've got, um, the quality of the tech and the carbon footprint as the sustainability. You've got, um, you know, uh, the the developer tools that are out there and the ease with which people are able to do that and, and learn is the knowledge economy and it's all decentralized. But at the end of the day, if those basic pillars are in place around a blockchain economy, you found a pretty good recipe. And the last piece would be, you know, when you think about the measures of, of GNP, you know, typically talk about gross national product, you can think about gross network product with a blockchain. Mm. And, and that's really tied to, you know, something as simple as total value on chain, uh, locked or participating in the economy, real transactions versus just, you know, sort of fabricated transactions. So what's the real velocity of the, the economy? And all of that happens. Um, and I yeah. think so if you look at that, that becomes a proxy for GNP and the strength of the economy that's being built by any particular blockchain. The ones that follow, I think those principles, and I think um, the more people start to hold blockchains accountable according to those macroeconomic principles, the more clarity there'll be around, you know, both the quality of the chain as well as uh, the longevity and um, and there'll be a, a, you know, I think a, 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 a real opening of additional investment and participation from institutions that uh, today maybe aren't really there yet. As you pioneer and architect these new building blocks of 
essentially these cross border economies, countries, and you, and you're architecting it from every aspect I see, um, you know, it, it's a big responsibility. I see the seriousness with, with which you take it. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of junk chains out there as well. Uh, so let's, let's sort of dive into the next phase of, of Algorand itself. Sure. And, and, you know, if I were to put it into like a historical context, I say, okay, as you just said before, the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi around 2008, and then some years later, Ethereum 2015, which was a different paradigm, right? We went from the slow trudging sort of, you know, uh, store of value to a pro programmable money with Ethereum. It opened up uh, a whole new Vista, uh, both of them initially working on proof of work. Ethereum may move to proof of stake, we'll see. Uh, and then enter this brilliant man, Silvio Micali, um, one of the founders of modern day cryptography, a professor at MIT for 38 years, a, a winner of the, the Turing Award. And uh, he saw a better way maybe around two, 2017, 2018. What is the story of that? And how did that develop? Uh, and what is you know, Algorand, what is this incarnation? Yeah, it's so you did a very good job of describing Silvio. He's and he's also an incredibly kind and uh, and thoughtful man. So he has a lot of nice personal attributes as well uh, beyond his uh, academic and scientific accomplishments. He's uh, no, I'll, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I've seen I've seen a number of videos <laughs> with him. I've never met him, but he's, he's an incredibly charming guy. And he's yes, so, he, he, he disarms, you know, uh, yes. hundreds of people in, in, in an auditorium are, are just, he puts you at ease and he's, and he, yeah. and he's got just a wonderful style. He does. Well, I would tell you just, this is, this is very quick is that on Silvio, he's one of these rare people who I, he, he's so brilliant. Um, and yet because he's been a professor uh, and a very good one, he's able to explain incredibly complicated concepts very simply. So, I mean, you, you want to talk, how lucky am I for the last three and a half plus years, I get to spend almost every day, you know, I, I, I've essentially gone through a PhD course uh, in, uh, in, in cryptography and computer science and blockchain. So, um, so the story of Algorand, he, um, so he, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's sort of what you said. He, he read the Bitcoin paper. Now, remember he, he was a Turing award winner and what he had done, this was crazy. This was all by, you know, do all these calculations by hand back when, you know, we were in college yeah. and um, he's doing all of this. And he, he came up with a few things and you know, one is called zero knowledge proofs, ZK proofs, which, which most blockchains use today uh, in some incarnations. So really when you say he's a pioneer of my modern day cryptography, I don't know what the percentage is, but some significant percentage of all blockchains have to use ZK proofs. And so that's that he also did, uh, came up with something uh, called random verifiable function, which is essentially uh, the way that you can sort of drive, you know, for lack of, you just simplified, you know, drive consensus and, and, and approvals of, of, of blocks. And so uh, people that are part of, who participate in that process. And so, uh, so Silvio looked at the Bitcoin paper and said, um, you know, this, this is unbelievable, but I think there is a better way. And he, he and a number of, I would say, you know, equally impressive uh, or certainly impressive luminaries out of MIT ran a test 
with a new idea and do something called pure proof of stake, which was a different type of blockchain that we see with uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the very simple version of that, Bitcoin and Ethereum are proof of work. You mine uh, if you, you know, solve a complex uh, uh, mathematical problem, you win a reward. And let's say Bitcoin's case, a Bitcoin, and uh, the cycle starts and repeats. And that's the incentive that's used for people to maintain the network. Um, very costly, uh, not very good for the environment because the the stronger compute or more compute power you have, the more likely you are to solve that math problem first. And if you solve it first, you win. And so that has created a whole arms race in terms of power consumption and usage around the world, which is not great. So Silvio's thought was, well, what if we redesign this and create a next generation chain that's also very performant, uh, uh, so it's scalable, secure, and decentralized, which is something that we hadn't seen before. Um, and Silvio famously would say that Vitalik at, at Ethereum said, you get to pick two, but there's no such chain that can be scalable, secure, and decentralized. And then Algorand came along and said, nope, we have one that could. So Algorand became a pure proof of stake, which means that there's no barrier to participate. Uh, the the uh, the only thing that you need to do is actually keep algos online, hold algos, uh, and you're a participant. You can be a part of validating a block. Running a node uh, uh, is very simple, and put it, you can run it in the back background of your laptop and not know that it's there. So it removed a lot of those things and really said anyone who becomes a part of this borderless economy uh, can participate in um, voting and decision making of the economy. So um, that's, you know, once that test was run, uh, you know, we were off to the races and Silvio and the team, uh, Steve Kokinos joined, I joined, uh, you know, right, right after. And, you know, we've grown, uh, we've grown Algorand appropriately to where it is today, I think, um, which is a top, you know, top 20 chain globally. And, and one that I would say back to the tech has never experienced even a millisecond of downtime since we launched in June of 2019, uh, which I would love to say is the norm for blockchain, but it is not. Right, right. No, very helpful. And thank you for that. Um, so it's, it sounds like the trilemma of blockchains that everyone talks about that you just mentioned to really have a top tier blockchain ready and durable for the future, it has to be secure. They, 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 so the decent, you have to be, you have to have security, you have to be decentralized, you have to be scalable. And it's so difficult because there are trade-offs with each one, but Silvio and Algorand cracked that nut, built this very fast, no forking, scalable, uh, never down blockchain built for the long haul and sustainable and sustainable too. We're the greenest blockchain there is uh, in terms of compute uh, power usage uh, as a point of reference, you know, Bitcoin uses the, all the power that is consumed by let's say uh, uh, Greece uh, for a year and Algorand uses the equivalent of 10 homes and so we've purchased uh, carbon offsets to take away that 10 homes. So we talk about our network being carbon negative because we're always out in front of, um, uh, of the power, uh, the, the right. footprint that we create. Right, right. No, that's very helpful. And, and just to give the audience a sense, what kind, I know you're working with some governments. I know you're sure. uh, working with different, different countries and projects, I think close to a thousand now, if I'm not mistaken, just give mm -hmm. people a sense of the kind yeah. of businesses and entities that are building on top of Algorand. 
Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a great question. So I would bucket it. First of all, I mean, one of the nice things about being public and permissionless, which, which Algorand also is. So anyone can come, anyone can build, anyone can go to the developer site uh, and, uh, and launch, you know, a business or a product or an asset. Um, That's important because, you know, of the projects that are being built right now, we're getting a, a, you know, at least a couple of week that are just organic that we find out about. So if you want to go back to the macroeconomic model, you know, there's a lot of organic development of, of people just coming and building in this, uh, you know, in our ecosystem. So if you, um, if you go back to the types of projects more broadly, I think Algorand has found a nice place in three, three, three primary buckets. Um, one is sort of crypto native or, or digital native assets. Uh, so those would be things like people coming in and building a, uh, you know, a business around NFTs, uh, building a business around, um, you know, digital assets or tradable digital assets. Uh, they could be, you know, regulated securities, et cetera, et cetera. But people who said, I'm starting a business that's a blockchain business from scratch. Right. That's okay. one bucket. One. Um, the other bucket is, uh, as you mentioned, you know, national governments and uh, projects. Uh, so there's a bucket there where those are longer term sort of, you know, uh, relationships that evolve over time. Governments have different perspectives. They do different things. It's not all CBDC. When anybody ever says we're working with a government, the you know instant reaction is CBDC. Well, it's not. And by the way, CBDC is used about 50 different ways. So, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of projects. Yep. And the third, the third bucket where we see um, Algorand getting a lot of traction is around um, sort of bridging uh, traditional, both uh, you know finance and, and or traditional companies into this digital world. So if you look at it, um, you know there are a lot of financial institutions that are starting to say, well, we need to have a way to drive uh, better settlement. We want to um, remove the cost of remittance payments. Uh, we want to create a digital asset. We want to tokenize um, real estate portfolio. And so people can actually create, um, you know, take those traditional businesses, take something as, as basic as, and understandable as, as, let's say, commercial real estate or even residential real estate. And they say, I want to find a way to get uh, drive liquidity from a largely illiquid asset like a building. And so what they can do is, is you know, tokenize uh, a, a sort of a band of the building, whether it could be, let's say, the, you know, a, a, or, a, or a, a portion of the loans against the building. They can tokenize it and they can actually offer it at a, you know, a fractionalized cost to tens of thousands of people who want to participate in the ownership of some commercial real estate, but don't have a million dollars each to put into some, you know, traditional uh, traditional investment vehicle. And so, so we have, you know, so in each of those buckets, we've got, you know, a considerable amount of, of activity. Uh, you know, if you just look at some of the, the recent projects, there's been a, a bunch of, uh, let's go with the DeFi. I mean, the NFT space is enormous. We've, we've seen significant uptick in NFTs from sports, gaming, uh, play, uh, play to earn, uh, creating digital assets within games. Um, you know, th- there are at least 20 games in the world that have larger GNPs, if you added it all up, than, than countries in the world. Some of these games have tens of millions of people exchanging real assets within the game for a sword or a, an avatar or whatever it is. And I mean, it's unbelievable, those economies. Um, yeah. There's also uh, a lot of work around um, 
you know, digital, other forms of digital assets, digital exchange. And there's, there's projects that are being built to allow for people to sort of swap in and out of, of other platform, one blockchain to the other. So a very big economy happening there. Wow. Um, it, uh, on the government or national side, I mean, look, something uh, on one end of the spectrum, there's real work going into creating a digital currency uh, that represent the actual national currency of projects. And those are happening. Those take a long time. Yep. Um, there are others though, that are, you know, several that have been announced just with Algorand. Uh, El Salvador is using us for as the infrastructure for all their government services, uh, starting with the documents and all the things that they use there. Colombia has created the, their national vaccine passport on Algorand, um, and they are launching it. So you see those uh, those opportunities uh, as well. Um, and then we talked about some of the traditional financial uh, opportunities. Well, yeah. Th- thank you for sharing that. that that's fascinating. All, all the m- many uh, applications that uh, this is being used for. Let me ask though, you know, you, you talk about some of these uh, centralized organizations, some of these governments, institutions that are building on top of Algorand that are tokenizing, fractionalizing. How do they, do you, how do they develop the expertise to even be able to do that? Do they work with you guys? Do you have an arm of what, of, of Algorand that helps them or do they need to hire, you know, talented developers? How does that work? Um, it, well, it's funny, David, you sort of rattle through the different options. I mean, so we, we have, um, uh, very quickly. So Algorand, we, I, I came from, you know, sort of traditional product, uh, traditional tech where you have, um, you know, people that that are there to help onboard and, and provide some expertise. So if you think about, you know, larger institutions uh, and or national projects, they certainly need um, a lot of time consultation and development assistance in bridging the gap from where they are for where they want to be. Right. Um, we either have our own people or we have a, a network of, you know, 40 partners we've vetted that we can bring in and help help make that happen. So that, that's how that happens. There's a broader, you know, group of, of folks where, um, you know, obviously we try to create the right development tools so that if you have engineers um, or you have people that are familiar with, you know, some of the basic languages, your, you know, uh, Java or Python or whatever, to make it easier for them to come in and, and build smart contracts and do that with some of the tools that we have there. Um, but again, uh, you know, the number of blockchain specific engineers compared to sort of traditional engineers is, is just a fraction. Uh, there's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, thousand to one of, of traditional engineers to blockchain engineers. And so what there really is a a need for, and we're starting to see this an acceleration of interest in, in the schools and other places for people to start to learn, you know, how to develop on blockchain specifically. And, and as that ramps up, I think it's only going to help drive, um, drive further adoption. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. You know, this seems like a nice moment to uh, give people a sense of, you know, here we are, Algorand, working with literally countries, institutions, banks, et cetera, all kinds of implementations. And you have many facets of the, this organism. I don't want to call it an organization. It's sprawling. I know you have a foundation, you know, the core company, uh, partnerships with 40 others. How do you, how does, give us, pull back the curtain a little bit as much as you're comfortable and give us a sense of how you structure this organism. Yeah. So um, 
Uh, it, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we're, we are, we've always been, and we, we continue to, to drive towards, uh, you know, broad decentralization um, at, uh, if you think at uh, launch, uh, you know, the, the foundation launched the protocol. The foundation is, uh, you know, based out of Singapore. Uh, it, it has, uh, you know, completely independent set of leadership and, and board members, and they make the decisions that they think they need to make in the interest of decentralization and, and managing the, the participation and voting on broader issues as it relates to um, some of the things we talked about, the environment with which people are able to build, the ways that, to- you know, tokenomics, all of those types of things are done out of there. And so, um, they they manage that they manage the broader community they they do grants they do um, you know things to encourage development and participation and and inclusivity uh, that's them they're again separate um, the tech uh, the tech was developed um, initially uh, within you know what we talked about Silvio had the idea the initial you know the technical development um, you know certainly began with um, Algorand Inc. Again, yep. we've also been very strongly committed from the beginning to continue to drive that development and participation out uh, where now we have, you know, thousands, you know, 3,000, 4,000 developers contributing to the, the network. Uh, we have, you know, thousands of nodes. So so the whole idea also was, you know, um, to continue to, to initially create a really, you know, strong uh, uh, protocol. We did that when we launched it. And then... Um, and then have you know as broad and wide a participation as possible, which we continue to drive towards. Right. So that's happening. If you think about um, you know other members of the ecosystem besides the you know thousand projects and and you know three to four thousand developers working on the the project, there are partners of which there are over you know forty that are out there that um, that work and help implement as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Any number of things could be infrastructure, asset design, um, uh, front end UI. Uh, all right. of those types of things. And if you think, uh, then you think about the investors and the investors have really started to come on in, in fairly rapid succession. Uh, borderless capital has been there from the beginning. Um, uh, uh, Skybridge with Anthony Scaramucci just recently announced the fund, which is looking to sort of bridge a lot of traditional businesses uh, into the space. Yeah. Uh, Michael Arrington from XR, uh, from uh, TechCrunch uh, right. it, it, they've launched a fund. Uh, the foundation itself has done a fund, right. and um, uh, you know, and we see a number of others. But the, the bottom, the in- interesting thread across all of those, unlike a lot of other projects, is that it's to enable the ecosystem uh, not figure out the tech, which is a nice thing because I think we we've got the right system globally and the right set of people globally all around the world participating in the tech. So the quality's there, yeah. uh, but, but we, now it's all about how do you continue to accelerate development and continue to accelerate broad decentralization and participation. Um, and that's where we go. No, I took particular notice of the uh, VC funds. Um, you know, you mentioned Arrington, Scaramucci, others borderless. Just, just a minute on that what kind of projects are they looking to fund? Because they're, they're out in the field, in the wild, looking for people building stuff on Algorand, correct? Sure. Yeah, uh, that's right. And so it's, it's a good question. So I would say the, the, the buckets are, are pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, in borderless initially, as we talked about when I was talking about the macroeconomic view of, of building a, you know, an economy, um, 
the uh, borderless was all out there trying to, to help, uh, you know, invest in uh, other components of that infrastructure. How do you continue to add new capabilities to the infrastructure? So they went in and, and I think were very successful at, at um, investing in and encouraging people to come to help do that. Uh, then you have, uh, you know, uh, Arrington uh, came in with the fund. Um, and by the way, collectively, it's about $1.3 billion of capital. If you add it all up, which is just mind blowing, but, uh, but, uh, but Arrington, uh, Michael Arrington and his team uh, came and, and thought, well, we also see an opportunity to, to attract new uh, types of, of assets to the, and invest in new types of assets. And also really look at, at the assets that, um, you know, we think are going to start to drive greater uh, uh, liquidity, greater uh, value on chain. Um, so their focus is, is, you know, sort of a mix between what Borderless is doing and looking to drive that TVL. Uh, then you've got uh, Anthony uh, Scaramucci at Skybridge. He's really a great representative of, uh, I'm going to just make it simple. You know, he's super, he's very into you know, blockchain. He's, he's under, he understands the system, but he also sees a massive opportunity for, for being a, a place that can accelerate the bridging of those traditional um, businesses and start to make, you know, drive adoption to the mainstream and bring additional capital in, et cetera. So you see all of them have a different uh, basic focus, but they're very complementary um, and again, focused on building the economy, the community, uh, maybe uh, versus, boy, we, we got to really figure out this tech because it's, you know, that that's not the discussion. Yeah. Absolutely. No. Um, you're building this ecosystem. Um, you have a lot of folks who've waded in now are participating, developers, venture capitalists, um, banks, countries, et cetera, uh, you know, participants uh, uh, in the network, obviously, if you don't mind, what paint a picture for us, where do you think this is going in the next five years, 10 years, you know, you're, you're here, you are the pioneers, the pillars are being put in place. Mm -hmm. Where does this go in five, 10 years? Um, and you're talking this being blockchain broadly. Uh, well, I, I would say, I, I, you know what, I would like, maybe let's start with Algorand and then let's go even bigger. All right. It's your show. So I, uh, so I would say, look, I, I think Algorand, um, we are, are, you know, already are, and I think we'll continue to accelerate becoming a part of the broad infrastructure for exchange, however you want to define that. That can be within governments, within countries, business to business, cross border, and the sort of innovating around ways people can exchange value, right? Uh, so it's not going to be us. There's other people that come up with ideas. They they launch them. As an example, you know, uh, the, the NFT space is, is a very wide range yes. of, of types of things. But even if you just go to something everybody understands, like art, um, you know, there's a there's a, a project on Algorand called Algawana. That is where um, you can you can buy an NFT and for any NFT that's purchased, they plant a tree. Mm -hmm. And so like you get like, that's an innovative way to help use technology to leverage something that benefits the broader good and people are able to create and exchange that value. Yeah. So I think Algorand will continue to become hopefully more and more the invisible infrastructure for financial exchange. People are going to be on Algorand. They may not even know they're using Algorand. And, um, and that to me is Nirvana. I've always said that you're successful in technology if people don't know they're using your technology. 
the, the more barriers you can remove, um, the, the more, you know, more successful you've been. And I think everyone can identify with what that means. If you think about blockchain um, more, more broadly, uh, look, there's lots of different types, lots of different use cases. I actually think that um, every company would like to achieve what I just described. I think the industry itself, however, if at least my hope, I hope this is true. Um, that if you took the right steps to build a real business on real tech with real people and real partnerships and real value exchange, and I'm using real intentionally, um, you will be uh, much more likely to be around for the long haul and much more likely be able to you know, sustain the usual sort of shocks to the system, the usual ups and downs of any industry, especially a new industry. Um, if you look back at the internet, uh, we all remember a lot of companies that aren't around uh, that started in the internet. We also uh, look back and remember a lot of companies that were very successful before the internet and couldn't make the mental leap. Uh, Blockbuster, have you been to a Blockbuster lately? Uh, have you been to a, have you been to a B Dalton? You know, there are just these big, uh, and there's many, many like that. So I guess the point is that I think we're gonna see that occur. We're going to see, uh, you know, uh, probably fewer chains that are interoperable, that are quality, that are working with one another. And we're gonna see fewer traditional businesses that we know today that decided to wait and not get involved and and really rethink their their infrastructure and how they sort of do business in this new world because they were late to the game or waited too long to believe it was real. And um, that's just the facts. I mean, that's a tale as old as time. So I think those are the two things we'll see happen. Yes, very, very compelling vision, building this for the long haul with quality, everything quality, uh, very compelling. Let, let me, we have uh, a lot of folks listening who have young kids. I kind of want to finish on this. Uh, your, your kid, you got started earlier than I did. So your kids are older, but you know, for the, <laughs> for the rest of us, you know, here you are, you know, we, we, you're, you're building this invisible infrastructure for this, this you know, this, this future that the kids are entering into, you know, we have the, uh, explosion of NFTs and games and, you know, uh, all, all this stuff that's appealing to kids, frankly, uh, and that I've noticed in the last few months, I said, wow, what would you say, what's a good way to kind of get your kids up to speed and interested in this space so they can get it, frankly, get involved in the industry if they want to, you know? Sure. Sure. Uh, well, you know, given that you and I went to, to, uh, one of the most prestigious liberal arts institutions in the world that had, I don't think there was a computer science uh, program there. Um, uh, ironically, uh, yet here we are. So, you know, somehow we found a way, but I would say that, uh, that it's easier now because I think, you know, first of all, um, I would say this, that for any, anyone who has a, a, a child that is interested in, in, you know, has entrepreneurial ideas or creative ideas or, um, or is thinking about a business or, or, you know, there's kids that are like that, you know, I would really think, you know, digital first, 
Okay. Like this is going to be like, you know, there's, it's nothing wrong with, or, and it doesn't mean there aren't sort of physical stores and things like that, but, but everything that's created in the physical world needs to have that bridge to the digital world. And so I think telling kids, you know, like go out. And if you're thinking about businesses, let's at least start with that mentality. I think the second thing, quite honestly, is there's a lot of really cool, fun things. Sequoia, uh, you know, Sequoia Games lost, launched Flex NBA. Flex NBA is on Algorand. Um, you know, it's, a physical and sort of digital version. It's by the way, affiliated with the NBA. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's just a game and, and you can get, you know, your tiles and, and have your, your put your teams together and play against friends. And, and that is a way to start to get to understand NFTs, start to start to really engage. Um, and I would encourage that. I also think just getting kids like a, you know, having kids uh, get a wallet of from somewhere you have a wallet and, and just learn uh, like you would if, uh, you know, we're trying to keep teach your, your children about, you know, basic checking account. You, you, you just get them something and have them send things like send an NFT to a friend. So there's just ways to sort of dabble. And obviously there's more and more courses that are being done. I mean, there's stuff online, there's, there's resources that exist in, and, you know, publications, Coindesk, Cointelegraph, lots of, you know, pretty good pubs out there that focus on the space and, and, um, you know, I, I think it's, I guess, to my mind, my advice would be just, in, you know, find where your child's interested and chances are there's a connection to blockchain and maybe just point it out because it's really the generation that's going to, that's going to, that's going to make this into something big. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, uh, I love the idea of the, the crypto wallet as the new sort of custodial bank account that your parents maybe set up for you when we were kids, right. To kind of get you, uh, a familiar with, with how money works and the world works now get them started with a wall. I love that idea. Yeah. Uh, trade some NFTs, send some stuff to friends. Uh, fantastic. Um, Sean, I know you're a busy man. Uh, you're building, uh, one of the, the foundational, uh, blockchains of the future. Uh, I, I really want to thank you for, uh, educating us and spending some time with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking me, Dave. Thank you. Hey everyone, Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?